Hey guys, just a quick note before we jump into this week's episode of InStride. InStride is brought to you by RideIQ. RideIQ is a mobile app with hundreds of on-demand listen-while-you-ride audio lessons taught by eventing, jumper, and dressage coaches. In other words, with RideIQ, you can take a lesson from an incredible coach during any ride you'd like. No hauling and no scheduling. Whether you're looking to add structure to your rides or try new exercises or build confidence, RideIQ can help. Membership is only $29.99 per month, and every membership automatically includes a two-week free trial. Try it for yourself today by downloading the RideIQ mobile app on iPhone or Android. On today's episode of In Stride, Sinead is talking to five-time American Olympic event rider Karen O'Connor. Karen competed in her first Olympic Games in 1988 and the most recent in 2012. She has won two Olympic medals, Team Silver in 1996 and Team Bronze in 2000. In 2003, she won the individual silver medal at the Pan American Games, and in 2007, she won both the individual and team gold medals at the Pan American Games. Karen has been named U.S. Female Equestrian Athlete of the Year 10 times, and in 1993, she was the number one ranked lady rider in the world. Karen retired from competition in 2013, but is still deeply involved in the sport today. She is an active member of the United States Eventing Association's Instructor Certification Program and runs O'Connor Equestrian in the Plains, Virginia and Ocala, Florida with her husband, David O'Connor. Sinead and Karen cover a number of topics in their conversation, including Karen's upbringing, her focus on natural horsemanship, and the recent world championships. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone. My next guest needs no introduction, the one, the only Karen O'Connor. Karen, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. It really is. I love doing this sort of thing. Thanks, Sinead. Okay. I'm I'm so excited to be on this side. I always feel like I'm like we were just talking about how, yeah, I feel like I'm I actually met you probably when I was about 16 and I you were my idol from 16 on. But when I was probably like eight, I knew who you were and was speechless. So now it's only taken me. I mean, I'm not that old. Ten years to <laughs> to get to be able to talk on <laughs> 50. <laughs> yeah, something something along those lines. But what's a number? But but I would say, Sinead, you you and also your family, Bernadette and your dad, have been very special to me all through my my life with you. And so it, yeah. this is a fun interview. It's yeah, it's just a big family. Well, starting there, where where are you? What? Where are you? <laughs> like what? Like physically? Like I actually, <laughs> I'm in Florida, and I actually came over to my mom's house in Ocala Palms, which is a gated community. They have fantastic internet. As you get into the farmer, the farmland in Ocala, the cell phone service and the internet service plummets. So I, br- I came over here and brought dinner and I'm working my way through keeping her happy and keeping her healthy. And she's going to be 91 next month. And I'm pretty excited about that. Oh my gosh, it's just insane. Okay, so you're in Florida, but let's talk about what it's like to be, I mean, you're, you're, you've been on the road, like living this life for 20, 30 years. I mean, what is it like being in Florida and Virginia and in Europe? And I'm not sure if tomorrow you're probably going to Holland to book a load. What is it like, the the journey back and forth all the time? I'll tell you what, horses are a way of life. They're not just a vehicle to for somebody to excel in something. It's a 
it's a passion and it's passion just as if somebody's musical or artistic or they're a scientist or doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. I mean, it is it is my life. My my heart beats with the horse and with the other animals that are in, in my life. And I can't even imagine not having a life with animals, even from the time I was a child. And it it's extraordinary. I always said during COVID, I can't imagine being a person that didn't have an animal with them during COVID because it would have been just really hard not to actually have that relationship. So having said that, it's it's funny. Um, the horses, they, they give you the chance to, to do whatever your goals are and their goals can be minimal or they can be like crazy. Having traveled the world, literally the world, the only continent I have never competed in is Africa. And it's, it's extraordinary to think that little passion, a little girl had, you could travel absolutely the world, never as a tourist and this Sinead, that you could travel the world with your horse and a crazy concept but it evolved in my life and i embraced it because i'm a highly competitive person but also because I, as i said the horses they just do so much for you that you you just want to follow their life too yeah yeah and so when you were when you were a kid what what was your family horsey like how did that how did that come to be so it, it's an interesting question because i thought my family was never horsey. My mom didn't have horses. My father didn't have horses. My grandmother. However, as my mom would then later tell me the story, is that my great-grandfather great on my dad's side, they had a, a sand and gravel business out just outside of Boston. That's where I grew up. And they had a team of something like 80 horses. And those teams brought sand and gravel from from where they were near Concord, Massachusetts, all the way into the roadways into Boston and built the first roads there. Mm-hmm. And they and they kept bringing them back and forth and back and forth. So I was like, wow. So I guess there was a lot of contact with horses. And she said, yeah, they, your great-grandfather was mm-hmm. very, very, that was his life also as horses and mm-hmm. turned it into business. So it's kind of cool. And yeah. I don't know that to say that it's in my DNA or whatever, but my mom was passionate about horses. She just never had the chance. So when she had it through me, she followed me and she'd been my biggest critic and my biggest fan through the whole thing. And she's been kept me on the right track through my whole life. So it's you have to have some sort of idea of how the horses entered your life and why they entered your life or animals for that matter. Don't you think? I mean, Sinead? Yeah. So were you just did you just want to take lessons or? Was oh, your- no, 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 no. We would get a <laughs> No, I. So I was given my first horse and there was probably five or six of us in that school that's in Bolton, Massachusetts, that really liked our horses. And there were guys and there were girls and it was just a group. We were just, we just bonded. And so I used to get off the school bus at 2.20 and get up to the barn by 2.30 and get the horse tacked up. And by 20 to 3, I was off running to the, to the fairgrounds. Mm-hmm. And that's where we all met. And we, we had totally free reign because that was the way it was back then. Totally free rain. You could go anywhere. You could, if you had a problem, knock on your neighbor's door and they were always there to help you. If you wanted to go into the general store and buy bubble gum, you tied them to the, to the post. I'm, I'm seriously not kidding. And that was a very small time in my life, but I was, I was totally hooked. The idea of being out there with a horse and doing whatever. And I also lived around a thousand acres of apple orchards. That's where I learned how to jump. And we used to take the crates and make jumps with them 
And that's how all of us learned how to jump horses. And I look back, I'm like, are you kidding me? That's how you did that? That was out of the box for sure. (laughs) Over the box. (laughs) Yeah, over the box, literally. (laughs) So, and from that young age, and like you were probably one of the most competitive people I know. Like, it doesn't matter if we are like, washing dishes or like or or playing twister or playing twister we we played many a board game (laughs) right you are one of the most and and, but you have such a cool way about your competitiveness because it's just fun you're like a little kid like you just light up when there's something that you can be competitive at and there's no you don't have anything that seems to hold you back in that moment you're like let's try it let's do it let's go and have you been like that since you were a little kid? Was that something that was? I think, I think so. I, I think so. My mom could tell you tons of stories, but for sure at six months old when I was, this is the story I was told. I don't really remember it, but obviously six months old and I was hungry. So I pulled the drawers out in the kitchen to make stairs and I got myself up onto the counter and I pulled the biggest knife I could find, which is a huge blade and made myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And when my mom came in, she was terrified. And I was happy as could be. And it just, I was an explorer as a kid. I explored everything. I just, I loved to sit under when we had a guy working on one of our tractors or one of our pieces of machinery. I would go under there with him and say, okay, what's that? What's that? What's that? As a kid. So you you just become an explorer of things. And horses found, when I found horses, I found a way to be focused and, and not be feel like you couldn't do certain things because you couldn't focus. And of course, we all know that's ADD now, but back then there was never a name for it. But horses found a way for me to really turn my attention into competitiveness. And the harder it was, the more focused I was. Mm -hmm. So So when did you start? Did you start with eventing? Was that your first competitive entrance into the sport? How did that yeah, I grew up in New England. New England is very much the hotspot of eventing because of Jack Lagoff and, and the headquarters at up in north northern Boston and Hamilton. And that whole area was just so into Jack Lagoff and all the medals that he had won with his teams and whatnot. And I didn't live very far from there. So, And then the Pony Club was super active. And when, I'll tell you another funny story, when I was really wanting to learn how to jump show jumps, that was a different deal than jumping apple crates. So I knew my mom always left on a Friday to get her hair done. And she would get her hair done and she'd go to the grocery store and come back. And that was the age of, they come back with a beehive and you're like, whoa, that's a lot of things. But anyway, while she was gone one day, one Friday, I decided I wanted to jump show jumps because I'd seen it in the Olympic Games. I'd seen it in different things. So I brought the chairs out from the dining room table and put brooms across and then I I actually brought the kitchen table out with the leaves down so that wasn't very big and funny thing was my mom came home early and I was devastated I was like that's it I, it's over for me and but she said she said I, I think it's time to give you some lessons we'll get you some jumping lessons and I it was really surprisingly wow she save her furniture <laughs> she did not even complain about that she says you know what that's awesome. I think it's time we get you some jumping lessons. <laughs> so that's how it started. Yeah. And then from there, I just got very, very lucky. I had a very, very lucky horse, Connemar Thurber, large pony, is 15-1. I took him all the way from being 12 years old till I was 21. And he did young riders. He did 
four-star, he did the whole thing. And then he continued on as I moved past him because he's, there was a limitation to a Connemara pony. He went on and did three more young riders, North American young rider championships with three different riders until he lived till his mid, late, mid to late thirties. It was really cool. And I think that that's one of the most important things for young people that are getting to sport to be lucky enough to get that horse, that horse that shows you how to win, that shows you how to have an incredible friendship, that shows you all those things that are important in life. But if you if you have a horse that you're is either not up to your level or it's above your level, or you don't have you don't know how to deal with it, it's gonna be a hard thing because there's so many other things drawing people right now. And if you're a failure at this, then you're gonna to go to something else. So Yeah, can you talk about that? Because I'm I'm sure you run into it and we run into it a lot here. It's kind of that balance between for some reason you know, we feel like we have to make a horse or we have to, tr- we need that off the track horse or we need the hard horse. And if we don't fix that, we're giving up. But like with, with kids or with adult amateurs who are working full-time jobs, there's a point where it's, where you think for, for younger kids, it's like you said, com- competing, being competitive, being safe. And then on the other end of the spectrum, if you're, if it's your hobby and your time to have it to enjoy to go out and be beating your head against the wall. Like, how do you, how do you walk that line? Because obviously we've all grown up and heard and had times in our life where we've had to ride the naughty pony or we've worked through and gotten rewarded when we've really stuck with a horse. How do you, how do you feel about all of that? I think as an industry, we really need to take a step back a little bit and get the new, the youngest group, the new generation to understand that this is, this is not instant. If you ask something instant, then you need to do something else. This is a journey. And a horse only understands what the information is that you give them. And if you give them information that's wrong or you don't give them any information, you're, you're going, there you're going to fill in the blanks. And if you wanted to give some advice to people, say, to say it's, and it's, whether it's an amateur or whatever, there's only one language for the horse. They only speak one language. They process information the same. It doesn't matter if they're Western English, show jumping, dressage, Tennessee walkers, Morgans, whatever it, the breeds and disciplines are the horse. He processes information the same. So as Tick, your husband is a big believer. So am I about the way to make, to make it possible for even amateurs or kids to understand the language of the horse and understand they call it natural horsemanship, but it's actually, if you take it a step further, that's, that's coined a phrase and it's a good phrase, but at the same time, it's just teaching people how to be a horseman before they select what discipline they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's missing. It's, a, it's like that being able to talk to the horse is the most important basic foundation. How, how does a horse talk? And they are talking all the time. It's just a question with your sophistication of your own, where you are in the whole scheme, that's whether you're listening or not. What, mm-hmm. what words are you hearing from the horse? Are you hearing disobedience? Okay, well, why is he doing that? I don't know because it's because he's stupid horse. Really, I don't. Let's talk about that. Let's. They they pretty much try to do everything you ask them to do. But if, if it's a bad cell phone service between you and the horse, it's going to end in some sort of negative response from the horse, whether it's dullness or aggression or whatever nervousness. They get racy, and that goes down. You set the racehorse off the track. Same thing. Those horses have to detox after they come up to the track, because every time the racehorse goes out of the stall, it's 100%. So in the sporting world, we don't want 100% every time. So we have to make sure that they understand that whew, life 
life in this sport is not as as instant and and full on as what it is to cross the finish line first. Mm-hmm. And that's why horses are just pretty cool to teach you a lot about yourself. Yeah, 100%. If you had like a perfect situation, like say you had like a, and take it from both scenarios, like you had a young rider and or and you had a super eager adult amateur that came to you and said, look, I want to immerse myself with you for six months. Where do we start? Uh, I, I would, well, I have to, as the person, have to assess what, where their foundation is. And you can do it very quickly with a couple of different, you just can watch them and, and understand what they know and what they don't know. And, and both people want a great result. And that's the job is to make sure that you give them that great result. And all of it is about safety and welfare of horse and, and communication so that the person has a pleasurable a relationship with the horse. So if they came to me for six months, I have to make sure that I know where their start, where their starting point is. And mm-hmm. if they have missed a lot of information along the way, which is very common, then it's up to me to fill in those blanks. And, and as I say, even if it's a horse that is comes to me with baggage or it comes to an amateur with baggage, you have to recognize what letters of the alphabet the horse does not know in his life. And fill in those letters so that you can start to make words and sentences and chapters and paragraphs and chapters and and you finish the book. And if you if you enjoy that idea, it's gonna be a super pleasurable. If you the only means to the end is you winning a specific competition, when you win or fail, it's just not gonna be good enough because mm-hmm. there's an end to it. There and it's not it's a good good weekend at the office but it does does it matter doesn't did it did it change your life did it change your horse's life so it's you have to make sure that you're not just trying to win and i'm and i say that as a very very competitive person but as i've gotten more experience and wiser i realized the horses if they if you communicate correctly with them and you start to really have a bond with them back and forth and they understand your body language all those five all the five natural aids, your legs, your hands, your your seat, your weight, it, it's all in your voice. It's all how amplified did you get that in your communication with the horse? And then you get to choose which ones you win, which ones you go fast in in the cross country, which 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 competitions are your, is your horse and you're ready to to master that part of the competition on that weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's really it's a, I was I was so about winning. Yeah, I just would make me crazy. I wanted to win. And then I'll never forget David said to me, I said, David, I didn't make any mistakes in the dressage and your horse broke in the canter and did this. And, and I said, you're three points ahead of me. I said, I don't get it. And he goes, the quality of my gates is better than yours. I was like, <laughs> he wasn't wrong, but I went into a little cave that, that moment. I'm like, I don't want to hear it. And then hear it 20 years later again and again and again. He was right. The quality of the gates is from communication. And you can make mistakes in a dressage test with that communication, with that quality of work, and it's forgiven. But if the horse is always against you, it's not forgiven by the judges. They they have to tell you so, so that you want to improve. You want to learn more about how to talk to a horse. How do you feel like, like this is kind of left of that, but 
you and David, I think, are similar to Tick and I, is that you kind of come at things maybe from opposite places, but you want the same thing. Like sometimes you have a different angle that you come at it from, but you always want to end up at the same thing. And and it sounds like they're like, I don't know, but it sounds like David brings that certain bit to to you and you probably really brought a lot of competitiveness to him. I mean, it I feels like, I mean, I think so. And imagine when we got married, we were in our 30s. So it wasn't like we were novice at this sport. So and we are, had already done badmintons and Olympics and worlds and all this, these different things in Kentucky's over and over again. And so as we, and it took us seven years from the time we started dating until we got married. And the reason for that among was the competitive competitiveness of the two of us, but also the competitiveness of our staff to each other, our owners, our just our friends, our family, because these are the people you wanted to beat forever. And we want he wanted to beat me, I want to beat him. And all of a sudden we like, Yeah, I like you. I like you too. And then now you have to come forward with this program this idea that you're actually going to take two programs that are both successful and you want to meld them to make them uber successful and it it really took a long time for the owners especially and the staff the 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 families were easier because they just they just want us to be happy but mm. the the staff and the owners that was a little bit of a different thing it was like she'll never ride any of my horses or he'll never ride any of my horses it's like oh boy Okay. And, and, and cheer for the other person. And I mean, really cheer. And it took time. And then in the end, that's when we start, we developed the idea that we should be a team. And so as you can remember, the O'Connor event team, now it's O'Connor equestrian, but it was O'Connor event team was, I think, probably the first team worldwide that was recognized because we decided that was the coolest thing. Let's have a team. And it was because we had to force the idea onto ourselves and everybody around us that this is a team it's not going away and we both have a lot to offer to each other to make it even better than anyone any single one of us could do by ourselves yeah i mean it's pretty incredible like there's i don't think there's anything like that now and there was definitely nothing like that then and when i was jotting down some notes about talking to you today i it was like i was curious about that was that the vision because it was so inclusive in a sport that can be so exclusive. It was such an include. I know I remember coming into that from a different program and just feeling a so welcomed, so part of it. So, and I mean, I was nobody that had done nothing <laughs> and it <laughs> was, it, and I didn't bring a lot to the table, but I felt like I was just part of this team. I mean, you guys helped with our schedule, with our competition schedule, with our fitness schedule, any questions we had, we were all super, it was, it was a very it was embracing and we yeah. were all family. Remember, we had spent Christmas together with your yeah. mom and yeah, and Jim, and mm -hmm. it was really fun. And and a lot of people. So Christmas was funny, and Thanksgiving because a lot of people in the beginning, when they came to work with us, they wanted to have the week off for Thanksgiving or the week off for Christmas, and that was fine. And then next thing, they don't want the week off for the holidays. They want to do that later because they want to be with us for the holidays with their families. And yeah. it was pretty cool because everybody got super involved. Yeah, no, the family dinners were were huge. I mean, I can still picture. Yeah, I mean, it was it was incredible. It was a really amazing time, and I don't think there's anybody really at the top of the sport right now that hadn't did, didn't come through that program. There was that program, and then there was Phillips program, and it was like that. Well, Phillip, Phillip, honestly, Phillips was quite a bit later because he. I think he came in, and I went down 
there in 2000. He was still Australian. So he, he didn't arrive until probably 2001 or something. But he quite quickly escalated into having an amazing program. And, and there were sort of the two programs that were producing riders. Yeah, so. It was pretty, that, it was, that was always the, and that's interesting to hear that the whole the whole goal was that, was to actually unite both of your teams and turn it into something bigger. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it was pretty pretty cool. Pretty cool to be a part of it. My mom and dad, as because you were part of this, they actually opened up their doors of their home, which had like five or six bedrooms or whatever, and started to run an Air, what is now known as the Airbnb or, or bed and breakfast for mm-hmm. students like yourself when you were young. And I believe, I think you lived there, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, in and out. And then yeah. Ali O'Connor for a while. And- right. But there were, there were some rules. If you were bed and breakfast with my mom and dad, you had to, you had to be there for dinner or tell them that you were going out. And when you sat down to dinner, Everybody had to talk about their experience. There actually weren't cell phones back then. I don't remember, but even as cell phones started, you couldn't have your cell phone at the table. You had to talk. Person, human being to human being. If mm-hmm. you had a great day, you'd talk about that. But if you had a terrible day, you also had to talk about that. So that everybody in the round table, all the students, and my mom and dad were super wise, that they they could share in what you were going through. And because mm-hmm. they'd already been through it with me. And it was Pretty cool. And then mom always made the dinner. Anybody that liked to cook could involve themselves in that. But for sure, mom and dad stayed at the table and discussed their lives. And everybody else got up and cleared the table and did the dishes. And and then we sat down for dessert. And it was, I think, a really pivotal moment for a lot of people, whether it was yourself or, or Fadri or Coleman or Alison Springer, the, the names go on and on and on. And it was a privilege to watch these people grow up into incredible individuals, whether they continued riding or not. The horses do a lot of things for people, whether you stay in the horse business or you don't. Well, and it's it's so great when you are part of a community like that. And it is and it really, I mean, really felt that way. It felt like family, it felt connected. It was not, it was I was, I mean, I think it took me a year when I first got there to really believe that it was just as welcoming as it was it really was just such a amazing amazing place to kind of grow up or have like your teenage years but I'm still friends and still connect with people that really have taken different paths that I met through your program or from being there or whatever that that you're not you're not close with this person because of their competition record but you're close to them because the experiences you shared together feels very it feels very like that and we're very proud of that but yeah we won't talk about it much, but and David for sure won't talk about it much, but we're very proud to have been a part of that and, and just to watch people who, like even Tick, who came in for six months to work with us, to turn into this person that he's become. And, and half of the, the World Equestrian team between Will Coleman and Lauren Kiefer, that's really cool that you can actually put your stamp on 50% of the team. And, yeah. and there was such a good result. Probably probably one of the most proud moments in my teaching career was to watch those guys do so well. No, it was amazing. Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. And let's talk about that a little bit, because I mean, I'm sure you were the same as me, like, like even just fast forward to show jumping day. I mean, on the edge of my seat, like, Oh my God. Show jumping. I was laughing, crying. Brooks was like jumping behind me. Like he wasn't watching. He didn't know what was going on, but there was a lot of yelling. (laughs) Right. 
it was such incredible sport. I mean, it was incredible to watch. The show jumping was so difficult. Like it was bananas. Talk, talk about the world and talk about the sport now and the evolution of it where it was before. I mean, we don't have to go into the long format thing, but no, I don't, I don't need to do that because that was just a test of the horse yeah. that, that dribbled off of the army and the cavalry and it, and then it turned into sport. And that's when eventually, thank God, the long format disappeared because it was just so incredibly tough on the horses and their careers were much, they were half the length that they are now. So anyway, we have a great sport that we have evolved to. And the fact of the matter is, no matter how you look at it, you have to have a pre-St. George horse that moves incredibly. You have to have a cross-country machine that has his own special balance that he likes to keep at speed, at speed, and that is very courageous, but at the same time, very careful. And then you have to have a meter 40 show jumper that is careful. That's a seriously difficult combination. And I would say that we're pretty lucky that I, the majority of the horses on the U.S. team had that between Will Coleman's horse and my bomb and certainly Ariel's horse. Those are super special horses. And then we had Lauren, who who produced this Arabian, Arabian, to the five-star level. And not only that, but to be competitive in get a 20, what was it, a 27 in dress size? I mean, like, I thought she was, I actually watching the round, it was one of the most beautiful show jumping rounds. I thought for a little while, she she almost had a clear round and just tipped. Yeah, yeah. But, and those cups are on shallow, really shallow cups, which we should be doing in this country all the time so that we know where we stand. But yeah, it's it's really cool. I was talking to all those guys by text every single day, several times. And uh, Tammy was well-placed after dressage. And I, <laughs> I texted her and I said, a, a wise man told me once, make sure your first minute is your fastest because you won't make it up after that. And that would, was David. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just before I was in the starting box to go around Burley. And I was really competitive after the, the dressage. And he says, make sure your first minute's your fastest. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And off I went. And then I made the time and it was amazing. And I was like, I'll never forget that. And I yeah. passed it on to Tammy and, mm-hmm. and those guys did amazing. What a camaraderie they are. And we go back to family, Sinead, and you thought had that trust in that family when you were coming through our program. I think all those guys had the same feeling. They had mm-hmm. a family unit with everybody involved with, with Bobby Costello is such a unifying personality. And Max, she just is so collective of everybody, no matter who you are. Uh, one team, one unit, and and then you had amazing grooms, and and then of course amazing riders and horses, and so it it's been a long time coming. It it was in the end no surprise. I knew it was going to happen all year. I really did, and mm-hmm. I I couldn't be happier for for all those involved, the owners, every everybody that mm-hmm. they did such an ex- exemplary job of really coming through at the end. So. Yeah. It's yeah. cool. And I think it's only going to get better. Yeah. I was thinking about that. I mean, I called, <clears throat> I st- I called Scott Keach a couple of days after, cause I saw him over there and he's coaching some of the show jumping. And I said, what did, what did you think? And he said, welcome to the new sport. And yeah. I said, exactly the same thing you did. He said, it's got the horse has got to, it's got to move. It's got to jump. It's got to do everything. And, and the riders have to be incredible. Yeah. And it's not, yeah. And I, and I actually think even from looking at it from a safety side, 
that level of sport, I think, is really going to add to the safety of the sport because the other stuff is just going to fade away. Like the quality of the, the breeding programs, everything is just going to have to come, come to a certain level that in a skill set that is going to be so important. So I hope from the top down that, that, that skill set and the quality that needs to be produced just helps with the safety part of the sport as well. I think, and, and for me, it starts right down at the bottom. I think the most important instructors in the life of a person that wants to do this for their life it's your beginning instructors. I had some really strict instructors that worked on position and technique and all that stuff. And I think that there is a there is a tendency for instructors to go towards a competition effort before you get all that foundation done. And I look forward to the day when you look at pictures of a show jumping as an eventing group and our pictures are the same as show jumping. Yeah. yeah. And the dressage competition the same as dressage riders yeah. and we get lost somewhere in between we're triathletes but the guys that are winning at the top they are experts in all three phases mm-hmm. and i think i remember having this conversation with you a couple of years ago actually and you you said and it was and i hadn't thought about it but you said our country doesn't have a style like our no. you think about america you're like and you were saying look at the german riders you can tell right away that they're German. You can tell the French writers are French and the Americans, for some reason, were kind of like a little bit in this limbo in between everything. Well, we, they, we have a style. It's called glitter. We have more <laughs> USA stuff in it, in the stables than any other country by a long shot. <laughs> it's true, right? We got the bling. Yeah. Bling. We have the bling. But anyway, that's, that's being a bit unfair, but because the USEF is amazing, obviously, but with their grants and everything, but it's true. And when you don't come up with the goods, but you get the banners out there, it's, it's, you feel like it fell short all the way around because you have so many people backing you and you didn't have, you didn't deliver the goods. And when you ride on a team, I think of, I always thought of myself as I was a hired gun. I was a high professional to do a job and that job had to be done no matter what and no excuses you got there because you did well figure out how you did well and repeat it you have to be repeatable and reliable and i think these guys and i i actually think between lauren and will and several others they're going to lead this Mm -hmm. for the next 20 years Mm -hmm. and if you would stop having kids you would be right with them (laughs) i'm done let's just say i like we like tick has a certain appointment booked before Thanksgiving. Ah, good, 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 good. <laughs> <laughs> even though they're even though they're they're beautiful. I saw Violet. Whoa, I saw Violet the other day. I know, and uh, he's so gorgeous. He's so cute. So. Well, that that is that is so cool. So talk about like when you were in those situations. Talk about how you dealt with pressure. Like how do you, what's your relationship like with pressure? That's a really good question. When I was younger, when I first started working for Jimmy Wofford, um, I didn't know how to handle pressure at all. And I was terrible in the dressage to the point where he would come with a little Dixie cup into the warm up of the dressage arena. And I thought it was orange juice. And he gave it to me. He said, drink this. And I said, what is it? And he goes, it doesn't matter. Just drink it. And it was a shot of bourbon. <laughs> and I can say that now 40 years later. <laughs> but seriously, he was like, calm down. And I was just a hot mess. And so I guess I had to learn that by getting better at dressage. It, good experience. Confidence comes from good experiences. And so if you want confidence, you got to get better 
to the point where you're actually riding at a higher level in dressage and show jumping than you compete at confidently. The cross country can't do that, obviously, because the cross country has to be very carefully promoted through the through the levels of competition, but only as your horse is ready. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But but like, how do you handle pressure? I've had some really interesting experience in 2000 at the Sydney Olympic Games. I was the last to go. And when I came in, it was a long format. When I came into the 10 minute box, Mark sat me down, Mark Phillips sat me down and he said, so here's the deal. You go inside the time, we're in the medals. Anything else? We're not. All right. Okay. No pressure. See you later. Got to go. And sure enough, I mean, like I was like, do your job. You're a hired gun. This is not about you. It's not at all about you. It's about doing your job, doing it right, and having the right result. And if you brought all your technique, all your skills, all your tool sets, everything to that day, if you're getting nervous, you aren't doing your job. Mm -hmm. You're not doing your job. Your job is doing it for your country. And Mm -hmm. of course, with the welfare of the horse and all those things are way more important than doing it for your country. But in Olympic Games, you are hired you're hired to do a job for your country. And I take that, re- I took that really seriously. Mm-hmm. And, and when that- you talk about the, the skill set, like, I mean, obviously once you get there and you go, if you're lacking in the skill set, you have to make up for it somewhere. And then you damn sure try not to show up again without it. Right. Exactly. I mean, like yeah. you have to have the skill set. If you're going to win as a country or medal, yeah. your collective group has to have the skill set to get it done. And if you don't, well, then you go in there that you're rolling the dice. And mm-hmm. I think we've been stuck in that dilemma for 20 years mm-hmm. and that we haven't had the skill set. Maybe one person has had an extraordinary horse and other people don't have that horse, but their skill set is good. So they make the best out of a situation where the horse maybe can finish in the top 10, but no way is it going to be a winner be just because of natural talent or whatever. And for 20 years, we've been trying to figure it out. One is having that program that you trust. And stick with it no matter what. One is being able to make choices like who your coach is, who your horse is. All those choices are critically important. The talent of the rider actually is the least important. Your determination and your perseverance are way above your talent. And you find that out in this in the journey. Even the, even the most talented. You, you've seen many, many super talented riders that they just never made it. Mm-hmm. Why didn't they make it? Maybe they didn't have the perseverance or the or the commitment, or whatever it took, or maybe they got unlucky, they didn't have the horses or the backing and the support. And I, I really believe that you have to be the whole package if you're going to be able to do it. That's hard. And never forget that you're not in the horse business, you're in the people business, because every single horse on this planet is attached to a person. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to be a people person as well. And most of us can't, we don't have the funds to do it personally. And so we have to, I don't think of it as having sponsors. I think of it as having people understand your journey and they want to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And that journey can be as long as you want it to be. But the people around you, as, as you you guys are great at this also, is to be able to have people follow your journey. And look at the journey you took. You missed the Olympic Games in 2012. And next thing you're second at Burley. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you t- took something that was a negative and turned it into a positive. And you'll, no one can ever take that away. Mm. And I think that's perseverance. That's somebody that knows how to handle pressure, knows how to 
handle disappointment and turn it into something positive. Yeah. So there's just so many things about the mental side of doing horses when you're also dealing with another brain. Yeah. And have you, have you ended up throughout your career? I'm, and I know the USAC provides people in team training sessions, but have you worked with sports psychologists? Have you read books? Where have you kind of found your, your, your kind of mental game side of it? So I, I, yeah, I've, yeah. I've read a lot of books and I haven't worked with so many sports psychologists as I've heard other people have, mm-hmm. but I've always, I have, it's kind of weird, but I have to tell you, my mom was my, always my, my moral compass and mm-hmm. anything sports wise, cause she was a sports woman herself, anything like that. I could go to her and talk to her about it. And she had so much, she was so wise, had so much wisdom and, and uh, still does. Gosh, make you cry with a look, that kind of thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> as I know, Bernadette could probably do to you. <laughs> so, it's funny because it doesn't necessarily have to be a professional. It has to be somebody that has your back, that mm-hmm. you can, that can be a sounding board for you, and not necessarily talk, but listen. Mm-hmm. My mom's very good at that. And then online stuff and reading a lot of books and listening to a lot of podcasts and different things like that just to get it in your head. And I would say profoundly, one of the most positive things in my riding career was to study the natural horsemanship and mm-hmm. really study it. and really, and David too, he was passionate about it, but to really, really study it and realize how horses think and not just what they do, but why do they do it? Is it a positive? Is it a negative? Well, if it's a negative, what happened? Why did that horse react that way? Mm-hmm. And what can I do to help that horse understand what I want it to do or what society wants it to do. There are horses you put them in a stable and they just, all they do is kick and they don't like to be in there and Mm -hmm. they're not wrong because they're not supposed to be in there, in their DNA. They're not, they're supposed to be roaming. So then they've been put in our society and a lot of things have been taken away from them. We have to show them a way for them to have a purposeful life that they enjoy while at the same time they have been limited in what their instinctual behavior tells them to what to do are they a predator we're predators they're prey animals do they go prey animal or do they go partnership and that's a lot of that i learned through natural horsemanship and i know tick has been very involved in that and wrote a fantastic book as well that a lot of people have really taken to heart and it's about what a horse why they do what they do not what they do do you think that there's, I mean, I haven't, I've thought about this a lot, but I feel like there needs to be like an upgrade in the, even the word natural horsemanship, because it feels like it's, it's like being a, uh, like learning the behavior or learning the thoughts, like being an animal behavioralist. It, it, it should be, it should be easy for everybody to do at the beginning of their, their riding life. And that's mm-hmm. what I was saying before that you were talking about people, whether they're amateurs or children or they're coming back to it because they've had, they rode before and they're coming back to it after they've had kids, whatever. They connect with the understanding of why a horse, how a horse thinks and why it does what it does. And it's been coined natural horsemanship, but I actually believe it's just horsemanship. And mm-hmm. natural, that puts a definition to it. But when you go into a horse's stall and you don't know it, the last thing you're going to do is slap it on the butt, right? <laughs> and you learn the hard way maybe yeah. over years and years and years, how to become a horseman. Mm. And that journey is not just about being able to win this, that, or the other, or a horse standing on a picnic table or it lying down and you can go under it. Those, those are tricks. But at the end of the day, the horse has to understand what you want. Yeah. And it's not that we, I, 
I would never force a horse to do anything. And yet at the same time, my ignorance and my lack of knowledge as a as a 20-year-old, 24-year-old, whatever, would always be finding that the horse didn't know how to do something or it wasn't capable or it wasn't good enough. Or, and then I would get after it. And, and I think everybody goes through that when they don't have the knowledge. And then you come out the other side and <laughs> the first thing you wish was that you had those horses again yeah. and that you could explain it a lot better. And you're you actually have empathy for what they went through because they were giving you the gift of knowledge, but you didn't give it back. You didn't, you didn't stop when you should have, you, whether it's jumping a ditch or going in a wash rack or getting on a trailer or whatever it is. Natural horsemanship has taught me so much about having it happen without force. Mm. And it, and it's absolutely, absolutely is done can be done that way yeah but you don't see it very you don't see it all the time and so no. that's that's the gap so anyway love thanks yeah no it's interesting it's almost it's like a, it, it's it's almost a shame i mean I, in some ways i'm really glad that social media wasn't as big like 20 years ago but uh, uh, right you judge no. all the time yeah judge. but at the same time i and i talked to david about this when when i interviewed him was that you guys like the the horsemanship part of things was so like you guys made us do it. I mean, it's like it wasn't a choice. Like it was okay. You're, you know, you remember you remember when Coleman's horses were loose every single every day. day. <laughs> every day. I mean, it was like every because he would he'd try to be so soft, and the next thing he let the rope go through his hand, and they'd be running up the hill to the stables, and we'd be like, well. Come on, man! <laughs> like, yeah, I was just—I was just whispering to him. I was, I was whispering to him. Don't <laughs> whisper louder. Keep your hand well, on the road. Watsy's running down the road again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was hilarious. <laughs> but those are good times. Those are very good times. Yeah, but it wasn't—it wasn't as as public. Like, I don't think as many people, unless you were. I think again, it it was made more public and more public. But it was such a huge thing. I remember just being so amazed when I first got there that you guys were all riding around without bridles and your horses that you're taking to the Olympic Games. You could point at something, they go jump it. I mean, I thought it was incredible, and I had never without heard. without being aggressive. They weren't. They weren't. Yeah. They just let them let them be. Yeah, it was pretty. Like, it's, well, if, if you can do it without tack, like. Like what an edge when you actually have to wear tack at the worship. <laughs> what do they say? We push when they won't go and we pull when they won't woe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But everything else between is body language. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, pretty incredible stuff. But yeah. And it, that's, I think that's the thing too, is that it, once you start going down that path, it's just so interesting and it's so much more rewarding. And like you said, like when you're, when you're younger and you get into some jams, it's so frustrating. You just get so angry and upset and it's your fault. And I think your your anger is to yourself. Mm. But then unfortunately the horse ends up getting a little bit the, the brunt of it, depending on your temperament, really. Yeah. Some people walk away, some people don't. And in either case, the horse doesn't get it. Mm. Yeah. So it's it's a remarkable journey. And if if you can get to the other end of that and get the knowledge. That's knowledge you'll have for the rest of your life, not even with horses, but with people and with yeah, experiences and just life. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. Have you, and, and I, just, I just, when I was thinking about stuff, I mean, you, again, have you ever gone into a situation, and this is for my, my own question, because I feel like you're just such a, like, gregarious, outgoing, curious person, like, and you're pretty, like, 
I can't imagine you ever being intimidated. Like I really can't. Like, has there ever been a situation with a horse or in something where you kind of walked in and a little like hesitant? I think I think everybody goes through something. And I'll never forget as a kid, I used to faint all the time in school when any kind of pressure was put on me. Like when the when the rest of the class would look at me, I'd be like, <laughs> and what if I had to go up and do any kind of a talk in front of a class, I usually got lightheaded. I, I just couldn't handle it. It was just way too much pressure for me. So I think everybody goes through those things, whether you have nightmares, you wake up in the night or whether you faint in front of a crowd or whatever, whatever it is, you have to work through that as a human being. And sport did a lot of that for me as I, as I became in school and sports and everything. And it's a funny thing. I got a, I failed in, in athletics when I was in private school and I was in like second or third grade. I failed in athletics for that session and they did comments and he said Karen must learn to be a team player she does not share the ball in soccer and this is a team sport and so we failed her for that and my comment and my mom and dad asked me that and my comment was well they can't score the goal so why would I give them the ball <laughs> and, and <laughs> you look back on that 50 years later and you're like what what was that like, why didn't you just let it go? Who cares? It's just a game. And I, and I obviously I couldn't. So it, it defines you as a person, whatever it is, as you're young. And then you have to, you all, everybody works on their weaknesses, or at least you want them to, whether that's something physical or emotional or intellectual or whatever. And yeah. horses, horses will help you. Not help you. Well, and interesting too, like talking about like your support system with your mom, because obviously I've known Joanne forever and she's always been such a huge part of the program and what your guys doing, but I didn't think about it that much. And, and what's interesting when you think about a lot of people that you guys lived in England for a long time, I was there for a little bit of time and a lot of the, the riders and the up and coming, it's a family affair like it's their mom and their their yeah. moms take horses while they're doing university and coming back and doing school like there's a huge support system from the family absolutely and i had that and david had that and i think it really hugely helpful if you can rely on the very people that you're related to and they, yeah. they have your back more than anybody else mm -hmm. uh, and you can you have the ability to go do something else whether it's for an hour or for two weeks or whatever, if it's cool. And I think that that's really, really important. But I would also say that a lot of those parents actually rode or fox hunted themselves. So they knew a little bit more about horses in general than the average parents now mm -hmm. that their kid really likes horses, but then they're trying to catch up, but they really don't know too much about it, but they're doing the best they can and a supportive completely, but that's a sport they have not been involved in so much. But in England, it's all, everything's horses in England. Yeah. And how would you recommend, because it's really tricky. I mean, if you, if you're a parent or even if you're a rider that's getting into it later to find the program, to find the community, to find the place that you feel like is, is going to be a safe space. How do you find that? It's always going to come down to your, who your first networking is. Obviously you have your family and hopefully, hopefully your family is supportive of you having a horse or at least going to a riding school or whatever. And that's not always the case, but the kids do find their way to the horse if they want it that, that bad. And then it comes down to the program or the riding club or whatever it is. And, and then eventually the teacher, or the trainer, or the coach, 
and that that person has a program mm -hmm. of horsemanship, not just of like going around a course of jumps or something that's not that difficult when it's isolated into a very small little nucleus. And mm -hmm. then you go out to a competition and you fail because you aren't ready. And I think the coaches, the trainers at the lowest level are really, really, really important, super important. And that's why through the ECP, which it used to be the ICP, the ECP now in the U.S. of Edding, is hugely focused on catching all those trainers mm. all over the country that are level one trainers and teaching them a system across the board that there's one program for the United States that we can adapt and that trainers can live with that idea. They might not completely agree with everything, but they can live with most of it and keep the kids all working on the same things at the same time. And then when they get caught by the under 18s, then it's still the same. They get picked up by the under 25s. It's the same. And then they move on depending on their ability, their, all their, everything in their life, all the variables, mm -hmm. but that, it, that it's a pathway that goes all the way through in a consistent way. And then eventually, like I said, it, the pictures all look the same. We have our own style. Yeah. A successful yeah. style. So. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I remember when the ICP first came around and I was with you guys. And so we were all part of it. And I still, I mean, I still use the, the, the teaching method. Like we had to get up and teach. I mean, it was terrifying. I think I was like uh, 20 years old and I had to up and teach in front of you guys. So hard. So hard. So hard. Yeah. But there was this structure. Yeah. There was a structure of like, these are the things that you have to teach. This is in the order and how you teach it. And there was a structure to it. So even, you know, like, I mean, Tig and I, a majority of our business is teaching clinics and it, I still use what I learned in the, I, but, it, but it's not, it's, but it's not new stuff. That's Joey, by the way, it's not new stuff. I mean, this is stuff that you have to have a degree in to be able to teach first grade or second grade or 10th grade. You have to have a degree in that sort of structure. How it's not how to teach writing is how to teach. Yeah. And as an industry, we don't learn how to teach first. We learn how to ride first. And then we have to teach because people want to learn what we know, or you have to do it because you can't afford not to do it. Mm -hmm. So in, in any, in either case, you have to learn the, the industry of teaching as well as the industry of equestrian. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, and I think that's an important thing for people to hear and know too. And when they're reflecting on the programs that they're riding in is that they're, it, it, it's not like the horse sports now are, are I feel like are, are luckily like evolving to where the the teachers and the instructors and the coaches and the programs are are all at a certain level they should be at a certain level yeah and it's like this obscure sport over here well oh like that person is just they have to be a little crazy to to ride horses like that this is the way that it goes it's not like that anymore like i think but, one of the, one of the things when we started you know we were we we're already successful in inventing but it was very important to us to not limit ourselves to it this day and i to not limit ourselves to eventing it was always so people did not live. They all lived in their silos and what David called the silos, right? And the silos were each, each discipline, each specialty thing in the, in the equestrian industry, whether you were a venter, a show jumper, a dressage rider, a cutting rider, a reining rider, you were doing a standard breads or ponies or whatever that it's all horses. And the way that we are going to be able to be the best we can be as a country is to drop the silos down and mm -hmm. understand that very well event riders are very critical of like 
the hunter riders. Oh, those hunter riders, right? That's living in a silo. And my comment to any of them at that point is like, have you ever tried it? Yeah. How hard it is to sit still in front of a jump as an event rider is really hard because we've been trained to be very aggressive. And now if you have to have a horse do a hunter round, it's it's one of the hardest things I think there is out there mm-hmm. to do it properly with the at top sport. And so and that whether you're a reigning rider, like a reigning rider, that is an amazing sport. And I learned a lot from the reigning guys when I got to ride world champion reigning horses and cutting. I cut buffalo. And it was amazing. I I I've done so many different things that made me feel like as it goes full circle, it's like, we're all doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants the same thing. They want to control two things, the eye of the horse and the hind leg of the horse. And that's it. And mm-hmm. if the horse gives you its eye and it, and you keep control of the hind leg, you can get it to do magical things. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Doesn't matter. doesn't matter what trick you're asking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. True. Interesting. I think we should get into some of these questions. Do you remember these questions that I sent you? I, I do, actually. I, I actually really do. So fire away. <laughs> All right. What is the biggest lesson a horse has taught you about yourself? Well, we've covered most of that, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> what has the horse taught me the most is any of the virtues that there are in life and and how to just take a moment and let the horse do the teaching and that we're not like forcing our life onto theirs, that we just step back and and just listen if you're talking all the time you're not listening and listening is about learning knowledge so i actually took a time took a moment to look up what are the different virtues of life and there's like a hundred of them but the ones that stood out for me were dignity and commitment determination i'm reading them uh gentleness gentleness for sure with a horse integrity is a huge one you have mm-hmm. to have integrity. You have to play by the the rules of the universe that you don't abuse the horse. You don't you don't you don't take advantage of the horse. Humility is a big one. Mm-hmm. And David and I always said, as we won or lost, don't let the highs get too high because if you if you just dance around on the highs, the lows just get too low. Mm-hmm. When you fail, you just can't handle it. And so you stay somewhere in the middle, just like just right there where that was a good day at the office, mm-hmm. and you embrace it. But then the next day you have to ride all the other horses and maybe you're going to a novice event and you fall off at the first cross rail. It's very, very much a humility experience. Yeah. The horse is the most honest of all of us. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you what, what, whether you're getting it right or not. So it's the honesty the, and the integrity. See, I'm going on. I wrote this all down. I love it. Your kindness and your love and your loyalty to the horse. You have to be very modest in this sport because the horse any sport, he will tell you whether you're getting it right or not. And you have to be like, you have to stick a step back, not a step forward. And patience. I'm not the most patient person with people and that, but I am super patient with horses. And the horses taught me that. I just, I'm still, I'm a work in progress and in my teaching on how to be patient with the student because the student has the horse and I'm looking at the horse and, I, and the student's not getting it. And then I I lose my patience, not my patience, but I lose, I want it to happen faster for the rider to get mm-hmm. the, you understand it. It teaches you self-discipline and, and responsibility, all that sort of stuff, patience, understanding, wisdom. So 
it doesn't matter what virtue it is. The horse does will offer it to you. Mm-hmm. And those are that's why you see people that you said earlier in the talk that have gotten out of the horse business, but you still you still stay in touch with them, and they're still super cool people. The horses gave them that chance. Mm-hmm. The horses taught them. And then on the day, if you've done all the things you want to do with your horse and it's capable of the highest level, and you want to pull the trigger and really see what you and the horse can do on that day against those people, then that's that's the day. And then mm-hmm. go be go be famous. Go become famous. Mm-hmm. But the minuscule stuff that a lot of people don't even know is happening is the minor triumphs that you're having with your horse back in the stable. Maybe maybe you've taught the horse how to be cool about clipping or, or, or being shod behind or having a shot or maybe getting in a trailer or getting in the wash rack and you've done it with the horse not being afraid. And mm. those are the minor things, but the, then there's the huge, huge triumphs that are they're covered worldwide or who wins what at what combination. Right. Right. But there's the minor, you got to get excited about the little ones. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's such an incredible, like, I feel very lucky that that's the medium that we have to kind of learn about life and ourselves. And that, like you said, that the horses just are there to teach us all of that stuff. And the main, the main thing, like you said, is to, is to listen. And I think sometimes that's the hardest thing because especially if you don't want to hear it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have a favorite training or competition mantra you reference regularly? I think as a, it, it was the same as a competitor as it is a, as a trainer. I think it was, it's important to have a systematic approach to everything. And to first, the very first thing is to understand the theory and the philosophy behind what you're trying to do. And and take that time to really, really understand what it is that you're trying to ask the horse to do and, and how you can ask it and then understand the theory behind it. And then from that point, there's a systematic approach to the technique, to the application of the technique. And, and then from there, the biggest part, of course, is practicing, practicing all of that, not losing any of it, but practice until you've perfected it. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you can take it to an artistic state. Um, but you can't be artistic unless you have the technique. It's like going to art school and learning how to paint. You have to learn how to paint before you can like do your own style. Yeah. And I believe that's very much the same thing with riding horses. You have to, you have to learn the language of the horse. You have to learn the technique to talk to the horse and, and how to talk and why to talk to the horse. And then you practice it until you perfect it to the degree that you choose to perfect it to. And then go do whatever tricks you want to do. It's all the same. Go be great. Go, go help horses that are being rescued, whatever it is, anything in between. There's just so many opportunities that we have with horses and horses have been around a lot longer than we have and they're survivors. So I think we, that's what, that's the, what I hone that into a, a mantra. <laughs> what was your, your, your competition mantra, your training mantra? There was something in there. I just about wrote it down. <laughs> no, what's it? I can't remember now. It was something about you gotta you gotta know the skill before you can. Okay, so yeah, so you have the skill. You go to the competition. You, the coach can't be there every time to walk the course, walk the show jumping course. And so I believe that the riders have to learn to have independence, and that because of learning the skill set, learning the theory, learning the technique, all of those things, they can go out and walk the cross country course without me and make good decisions still. 
because of how they have learned the technique and the variables involved with, say, a cross-country jump, why you would approach it at that speed, at that balance, at that everything. Yeah. Why that line and not this line? They would make that decision based on the knowledge they already knew. Because if you don't bring it to the competition, you're not going to find it when you get there. Boom. There it is. There it is. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> is there a piece of advice someone gave you along the way that you still reference today? For me, it's enjoy the journey. The journey is everything. It's not if, and David taught me this a lot. If, is it, if you, if the only thing you want to do is like win the Olympic Games, it's kind of like dropping an oar in a rowboat. The more you try to grab at it, the further away it gets. Mm. And, and I really believe that people benefit from enjoying the journey and not making the highs too high and not making the lows too low. And, and remember always, the thousands of years a horse has been around and how resilient that horse is from all the variables that he's found in his life over the centuries. And that we've kind of gotten to a point in, in the world where we're giving them the best we can possibly give them, given that we've taken them out of their own instinctual place in life. Yeah. So blah, blah, blah. I, it's, it's enjoy the journey. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard one to learn. What do you do when you are seeking inspiration? I, that's one that I, I struggled with a little bit. When I'm seeking inspiration, I have to, yeah, I mean, you could say something simple like, oh yeah, I get on YouTube and I watch all the best riders in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, I can do that, but I was one of them. So if I want inspiration at, at this stage of my life, it's inspiration on that sparkle in a, in a young person's eyes and their willingness to want to give everything they've got to understand all the things we talked about. And that sparkle in their eye gives me a huge amount of inspiration to be able to enhance my teaching skills even more than I have and be able to learn how to get my point across better and get them to understand how a horse thinks and all that stuff. It's, it's very inspirational for me. Inspiration for competition. There's there's inspirational ways to to get your point across, but inspiration is is within a person. I, I really believe it's within yourself. Are you, do you have inspiration to get up in the morning and ride your horse? And mm -hmm. uh, do you have enough inspiration to realize that your horse needs this and you need to stay up with that horse till midnight or whatever it is? I mean, do you have enough reality check that inspiration, what is inspiration? It's the ability to have you regard excellence and mm -hmm. want to get there. But there's so many things that go into that. But I would have to say, I mean, sure, I, I'm guilty of being a YouTuber and <laughs> and looking at inspirational rides. Like, for example, for crying out loud, at the Worlds, walking, watching Michael Young and Yasmin do their dressage test was absolutely inspiring. Mm. And then, But also, for example, on the U.S. team, watching Will Coleman do his show jumping was so inspiring. Yeah. So inspiring. And... He's so humble. I saw him the next weekend. He's so humble. He says, Karen, I'm really worried I'm going to fall off on the training level horse. <laughs> because that's your life. That's the journey. <laughs> and he says, if I do, I'll take a bow. <laughs> that's so, yeah, that's so, so good. Yeah. And I remember, I mean, how, and this is, this is sidetracking. Cause I remember, I mean, this is probably seven years ago or something. 
and you were you were starting to lean more into the into the teaching and you were struggling you weren't struggling but you were trying to figure out that bridge from the competitive oh I, oh yeah you're right i was struggling because so i got injured almost 10 years to the day i got injured at morven park 10 years ago and that's coming up this weekend so it's kind of a milestone for me where i broke my back really badly and have now i have rods in my back and it immediately finished in that moment my my riding career my competitive career in the sport and i struggled for a long time i I didn't even know I was depressed, but I look back on it for sure. For the first couple of years, I was completely depressed because I didn't know who I was, what I was supposed to do now, all that. And then I actually, I got the contract to coach the team from Mexico, the army team. And that actually inspired me a lot to say, you actually have something to offer here and you got to go down to Mexico City and see what they're, what they need. The next thing I know, I've had a contract with them for probably eight, eight years now. And they were so inspired by what I had to offer. Then we went on to Pan American Games, two Pan American Games, Central American Games, all those things that they'd never been able to participate in successfully. Yeah. And and so that was that took me out of that place where I was a highly competitive person and now I didn't know what to do with my life. And I realized I can take that competition mantra and mm-hmm. and put it into their lives and be highly competitive through them. And through their horses and through the, the, again, that, that program and that approach to everything so that it's very, that they can rely on the program and not rely on me yeah. and, and rely on the system and not rely on me. And I was successful with them. They, the, the last Pan American Games who were fourth, well, they never even gotten close to being medals before. So that was a pretty exciting time for me. It, it was inspiring. It was gave me a lot of hope for what I could do with my teaching life. And then that is completely expanded. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm really, really, really happy with the students and their enthusiasm for having lessons. I guess you would know that firsthand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Helping, helping Tick. And I think he's pretty excited about his horse. It's amazing yeah. the whole transformation in that horse. So, uh, there's only it's only looking up everything's looking up and every day's a gift and i will never not have a day without being able to touch a horse or smell a horse's coat or whatever because it's it is who i am and it's my life and there's anything more important yeah that's well okay the husband yeah he's very 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 important to me i I do the same thing for him yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> but but the horses but the horses are they're a gift to me they're a gift yeah and to you and to everybody that's listening they're they're such a gift to us and as you go forward through it and get the chances to do extraordinary things with horses and in my case to travel the world in the back of a horse trailer never as a tourist but always as a guest and being able to live with the royals hang out with the royals meet the queen my god what an experience that was the few times I met her and I really related to her as being passionate about horses and animals, passionate and had that gift of being able to touch an animal and having it sink into your hand. It's crazy. So and that, yeah, I know that has been at it for your whole life. And that's the stuff that sparks me. And then with that, you get the, you get the, the gifts of rewards of competition success of taking the horse to the next level, of being able to do more tricks, all those things. Those are those are 
rewards from being able to talk to a horse. You got to talk first. You can't ask. You can't demand first. You got to talk first and, and talk. It's got to be a conversation where you're listening more than you're talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we're, we're talking all the time. Yeah. It's, a, it's just so fun listening to you talk because you're so excited and like that kind of childlike excitement when it just comes to talking about horses, which I think is something that obviously has been with you your whole life and has, has really led you to have the success and the joy and everything that's come with it. Is that just that? It happens, it's that and it happens every day. I'm working with two horses right now with horse, natural horsemanship, whatever you call it. And one, you can't go in the, to the stall with it because it gets savage. Um, and in two days, the horse is like following me around like a, like a dog. And the other one doesn't know how to turn around in a slant load and it panics. And being able to just try to slow it all down, talk to it, be able to get the horse to understand because that's a tough thing, those step downs and turn around in the slant load. And getting a horse that really doesn't understand it to really take your time and get it done. When that horse finally gets it, it's like, that was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. Those yeah. details. Of, when a horse doesn't want a ditch, well, what want to jump a ditch? What do you do? You're going to beat it over the ditch? I, yeah. I don't think so. I don't think so anymore. That's yeah. what I was taught when I was 20. But mm-hmm. I don't believe in it at all anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Have you had an experience or adversity separate from horses that you feel has directly influenced you as a horseman? Well, of course, my injury 10 years ago, that was a big deal. That was, and we talked about it. So we don't really need to talk about that anymore. But something outside of the horse world that's influenced me, I've met a lot of people in a lot of different genres, whether they're musical or actors and actresses or, or, athletics athletes in other sports through the olympic committee and all that and those experiences just and and all the para olympics is very profound and those guys they they give you some serious experiences i'll give you an example we did after the olympic games you always get together as an entire usa team sport for a night of recognition and and then in the end dancing and so we go out there in the dance floor when it starts david and i and all of a sudden, there's this entourage of all the para, para Olympians, not riders, just all the Olympians. And they're all coming out in their wheelchairs, which I thought was extraordinary. But the most amazing thing was how they were just digging it. They were dropping their wheelchairs back, spinning them around. I mean, these are people with some serious disabilities. And they were make, they made the party mm. with, with the way they could control everything around them. And, mm. and, and I just, looked at it as like and we think our sports hard mm. this is incredible and those people really gave me inspiration and hope and and understanding that every every single person every single thing on the earth is is we're not here very long and we make the most of it so mm. love it not to be too too heavy into it but that's yep. that's where I'm in my life right now yeah i think it's incredible i think I mean, like I said, I think it's just so it's so nice to sit back and just listen to you and, and still feel all of that excitement and, and interest and learning and evolving and everything that the horses bring into our lives. We're so I, I'm so with you. We're so lucky that this is what we get to do. Every day. Thanks. Thank you. And I'm really excited going forward, getting much more involved with the U.S. team. As as I told you, I talk to all those guys all the time and every, every all of them, whether they make the team or they don't. And there's a lot of respect back and forth. So I would like to get a lot more involved in their journey, their efforts, their what they need to do to get even better. 
So yeah. now yeah. I might be able to help. Yeah. Well, I think that there is an unlimited amount of, of resource in you that can help there from experience. And then, and then stepping back and coming back in and seeing the, all the change, I think having perspective like that is, is incredibly unique in our sport. So but we, Sinead, after I got hurt, I didn't know what to do. And so I actually got more involved in a show jumper and I bought a show jumper that was a six year old and I showed him over in Europe, meter 25, meter 30, meter 40. But he was becoming so talented that I actually passed the ride off. And Marilyn rode that horse in the four and five stars for a long time. He's now 14 and he's now being leased as a under 25 horse. And his name is Clearwater. And I, I had a very unique experience to follow that horse around and be in the, not just be in the warm-up arena of, of those big classes, but you're actually on a horse that's doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and then to be able to walk those courses with, the person that's going to ride your horse around it and the plan and sit there and and analyze the plan and then analyze the schools be- between competitions. And that was hugely beneficial for my knowledge now in show jumping for eventual horses right. and how to navigate a course and how to school a horse between and just everything that's involved in un- having the horse understand that how to do that particular sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, there is a, I mean, I think that that's one of the coolest parts now is now everybody's got like staying with this momentum and getting involved in ways that everybody wants the same thing. And now we really feel like there's a roadmap to do that. And then just getting people like you involved that can kind of bring in and help. And everyone's goal is the same. We all want to, we all want to win and do it well. And and I'd have to say the efforts of Bobby Costello this year have been unbelievable. And he has drawn that team together and he's such a team player himself that it, it just exudes that kind of strength through the team. No shenanigans, just work, do your, do your job and, and, and root for everybody. Well, I mean, that's that the, the community, I mean, coming back to like, just full circle back to the beginning of the conversation that we, that we were talking about your community, your communication, that that is so huge in your culture and in the ability to be successful, whatever success looks like for you with the horse, it doesn't matter. Having that type of community around you really does breed success. Sure. Absolutely. It's very important. Well, well, I thank you enough for coming on and spending an hour and a half with me just chatting away. I mean, it's been super cool. It didn't feel like an hour and a half, but (laughs) no, that's why I always have to make sure whenever, especially when I have somebody like you on here, I always have to, I'm checking to make sure that I'm not like at two and a half hours because I know (laughs) going and going. (laughs) Because there's a lot of, a lot of information in that head. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I know. Well, I feel like now we want to, we want to start doing the circle back around and start at the beginning again, because I think that our, our listeners just so enjoy this. And 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 then there, and then there were the parties. That's another total different pets. That's be like edit. <laughs> that would be too too difficult for our production team in the back to edit. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. So what's the operation? You headed to Bukalo or Maryland or where are you headed? No, I'm not going to Bukalo because Danny's horse, as much as she tried very hard to have her recover from the I guess it's called compartment syndrome. So but she's she wasn't too sound. But she had lost a lot of work and we really struggled with the decision and got Chris Newton on the phone yesterday. And it just seemed like it was, she was behind the eight ball too much. And so she withdrew her horse from Bukalo. So I'm not going there, but I'll be at Fair Hill and then Terranova. 
And okay. I'm going to Ocala this I'm going to Ocala this weekend. Fabulous. All right. Yeah. We will see you there and we will see you at Maryland. We will see you at Terra Nova and then we'll see you at Christmas. <laughs> exactly. All right. Good. Thanks, Janae, so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. Thank your mom. Tell her I said hi. <laughs> okay. I can do that. All right. Take care. Everybody. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Before you go, I just want to let you know more about Ride IQ. At its core, Ride IQ gives everyone access to instruction from the best equestrian coaches in the world. It might sound impossible, but with Ride IQ, you get access to the private mobile app that has hundreds of on-demand, listen-while-you-ride audio lessons taught by top riders and coaches in eventing, hunter jumpers, and dressage. Here's how it works. You look through the app and choose a lesson based on your horse or a skill you're working on. There are lessons for green off-the-track thoroughbreds and nervous horses and horses that are behind the leg, as well as lessons that teach every stage of skills like shoulder in or trot lengthenings. Then you tack up and press play and you have a top coach like Doug Payne or Leslie Law or Gina Smith in your ear guiding you every step of the way. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family and leave a review on your podcast app. The best way to support the podcast is to become a Ride IQ member at ride-iq.com. And when you do, we hope you're excited to see that InStride is just one of multiple podcast shows on the app, including hack chats, conversations with coaches, and more. And lastly, I wanted to let you know that our friends over at Major League Eventing also have a podcast. And if you enjoyed this show, I think you would also really enjoy their show. Just search for the Major League Eventing podcast in your podcast app and give it a listen. 